Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit LifePointPB.com. If you need a Bible this morning, ushers have one, so just wave at them. Maybe you've forgotten your Bible or left it somewhere, uh, just wave at the ushers. And when you have it, turn over to Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5. And as they're passing Bibles out, and again, just wave at them, they'll get to you. But as they're doing that, let me ask you a question. Now here, um, let me warn you in advance before I ask you this question. Don't answer out loud. I mean, I suppose you could, but you don't have to. Don't answer too quickly, all right? And don't give me a church answer, all right? It's a very simple question. Are you happy? Are you happy? You know, it was interesting this week, I googled that phrase, are you happy? All kinds of stuff pops up. One of the things that popped up was Oprah Winfrey's website. And there was a, uh, there was a test that you could take to find out if you're happy. So I was curious if I was happy or not, so I took the test. And it came at 23 questions, you go through and you submit it, and it comes back. And I found out I'm a happy person, all right, from, from Oprah's website. Now, I could have been a happier person, I would have scored higher. There were some questions I knew how I was supposed to answer, but they weren't biblical answers, and so I didn't give them. And so, I, on a scale of, I guess if you scored 50 to 74, you were considered in the happy range. And I scored a 64, but I'm thinking, I could have had a 74. I, I mean, I could have done that. But here's the thing about it. <clears throat> What I'm about to say may cause you to pull back a little bit. It may cause your hair to bristle a little. It may cause something in you to stir and kind of react. So don't tune me out until we're done this morning, okay? God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be happy. I'm going to demonstrate that to you this morning in God's word. But he wants you and me to be happy you say, no, well, he wants us to have joy. Well, you're going to find out that when, you, when we look at it biblically, a biblical definition of happy is what we often would define as joy. But he wants that for you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to skip around a little bit in this, but did you know God is happy? Um, Dan, I'm going to skip to some. I don't know where the verses are, but in 1 Timothy, I want to show you this. This is kind of, there's, you know my messages. There is no real order. But in 1 Timothy... 111, and again in 615, notice what it says in 1 Timothy 111, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The blessed God? I thought God gave blessing. I thought he was the blesser. The blessed God? What does it mean? And 1 Timothy 6, notice what it says here. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When Scripture taught, and, and by the way, in the Old Testament, you see this all over the place. You say, well, Pastor, I thought the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Um, and how can, you know, how, how can you say that you find this word blessed or happy in the Old Testament? Because if you take a, the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scripture, you will find the same Greek word that we're going to look at this morning all over the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, we sang a song this morning, taken right out of the Psalms, Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Blessed be, you see that blessed be all through, blessed be the Lord, blessed be the name, blessed be. What is it saying? It's saying he is blessed. Now, what does blessed mean? That the God we serve is blessed. 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, or turn back over there if you happen to turn away. Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at this again. Starting there in verse 3. Blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The next verse says, blessed, I believe, is the merciful. Is that next? Yes. It just stuck, huh? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? And then it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It goes through all these blessed. And then it says that when we are persecuted, we should rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is our reward in heaven. But you see this over and over, eight times, eight different blessed or blesseds in Matthew chapter 5. In the first public message that Jesus preaches, you've got this blessed or blessed. The Greek word is makarios. Makarios. Makarios literally means inwardly, truly happy blissful, whole. It's, a, it's an interesting word. As a matter of fact, if you go back in classical Greek, Homer used this word when he's writing about the gods, the Greek gods, and which again is mythology, but it helps us understand how the Greeks understood this word. And so when he's writing about the Greek gods, he used this word makarios, and he said that the gods were makarios, that they were blessed. They were happy in themselves because they were separate from all of the trouble and the problems and the struggles and things that mankind faced. They were not subject to any of those things. So but by that definition, Homer says they're blessed, they're happy, they're makarios. The Greeks also used this word, they used it for the gods. They used it for dead people because they said, if you're dead, you're no longer subject to all the problems that we have here. You've moved now into the realm of the gods. And so you're Makarios. You're happy. You're blessed. They also used it of those who were extremely wealthy because they felt like, wrongly so, but they felt like if you had lots of money, then you weren't subject to all the problems that everybody else had to face. And so if, in a Greek mindset, this word blessed, this word makarios was used for the gods. You had to be a god, you had to be dead, or you had to be filthy rich to be happy, all right, in their mindset. It hasn't changed a whole lot in 2,000 years. You say, oh, yeah, it no, it hasn't. You have to have power and position. You have to have peace and safety, and you have to have prosperity and possessions. It hasn't changed. That is our belief, that in order to be happy, you have to have these things. So Jesus walks into this situation as he's preaching. Jesus speaks Hebrew, probably Aramaic, though we don't know for sure, which would have been a common language in that day. We don't know what he's speaking here on the Sermon on the Mount. More than likely, it's not Greek, though he may have known Greek. But when the writer of the, the one who's inspired, is Matthew who's writing this, and as this is being written, it's being written into the Greek language, this common language in that day. And they're taking this word, and Jesus is taking this word, and he's taking it further than they've ever thought about it before. He's saying, I want you to think about Makarios. He said, there is a Makarios. There is a blessing. There is a, an inward true happiness. By the way, that's the name of this message. Matter of fact, we could probably title this whole series, The Goal, True Happiness. The goal that Jesus had for them, the goal that God has for you and me is true happiness. He's happy. 
and he wants you and me to be happy. Now, the problem that we have is we have done, even in the church, what the Greeks did. We have determined that in order to be happy, I must have position and power, I must have peace and tranquility, and I must have possession and property. And if I have those things, people who have a lot of that stuff, they're happy. And Jesus shows up and he says, hey, I want to pull this word that you're familiar with, Makarios, I want to pull this out, but I want to completely redefine it. I'm going to turn it upside down on you. And he says, happy are the humble not the ones who are in charge, but those who submit. Happy are the sad. What? That's what he says. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the sad. Happy are the meek. We're going to spend a whole week talking about meekness and what it is. It rhymes with weakness, and so we think that's what it is, but it's not. What is meekness? Happy are the meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So you could say happier the hungry. I don't know about you, but I'm not a real happy camper when I'm hungry, all right? But Jesus said happier. Can you imagine what this sounded like to them? As Jesus comes and he begins to say, hey, happy, and they go, yeah, we know Makarios. Yeah, you gotta be a god, you gotta be dead, you gotta be filthy rich. You can be happy, and Jesus says, no. Happy are the humble, happy are the sad, happy are the meek, happy are the hungry, happy are the, the merciful, happy are the pure in heart, Happy are the persecuted, happy are the peacemakers. These people are happy. And by the way, God, he's happy. He is, he is whole and complete and at rest within himself. But what Jesus comes and what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's taking and he's transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant. He shocked them when he showed up there and he began to preach. They weren't expecting this message. They knew God from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament. And the God of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, as far as they knew, he was thunder and lightning and judgment. He was not about you being happy. That's not God as we know him, not as they knew him. He didn't care about your happiness, just your obedience. And so Jesus comes and he turns everything that they know and everything they believe, they couldn't hardly receive it. And quite honestly, 2,000 years later, we can hardly receive it. That God's goal, his goal for you and me is true happiness. That's what he wants us to experience. Now we're going to go in this series, week by week, we're going to unpack what that looks like, what Jesus meant, what he taught. But I want to give you an overview this morning, to begin, just to begin to give you an idea of what Jesus is saying and what he's doing here. He comes in to this situation and he literally turns everything they know on its head, but he messes up their world. He messes their world up culturally. We've already talked about it. He comes in and he says, I know that you believe that happiness, the people who are happy in this life have power, they have position, they have wealth, they have possessions. They have relationships the way they want them on their own terms. They have an abundance of everything in this world. And those people are happy. Those people are Makarios. Those people are the ones who are blessed. And Jesus comes in and says, no, they're not. As a matter of fact, Jesus does something to them that really messes them up. He says that true happiness cannot be found, that the tree of happiness does not have its roots in the soil of this world system. It's not there. You cannot find it in this world. You can't. 
That's what he's saying to them. That's what he's breaking down for them. The, I, the goal of the Father, the goal that Jesus says, I have for you, the goal of the new covenant is that you experience true happiness, but it cannot be found in this world. It can't be found. Culturally, he messes with the way they think and what they're thinking about and what they believe. And honestly, he's still messing with what we believe today too. Because if we're completely honest, and if the Lord allows and he reveals our own heart, because sometimes we don't know our own heart, but if he reveals to us what we really believe and what we really think, we really do think that if I had more money, life would be better. I would be happier. If I had more stuff, I would be happier. If I could do more things that I want to do, I would be happier. If I could have the relationships that I want to have and get rid of some I don't want to have, I would be happier. We still believe that. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I still believe that at times. See, what Jesus is coming and he's saying, he said, my goal for you is happiness, and you can live this way all the time, and it does not have to be subject to the circumstances and things that go on around you, that you can have true happiness, and it's not impacted by anything that goes on around you. That's revolutionary. This is the message that he comes to preach. This is what he's saying to them in the Sermon on the Mount. You can have happiness, and it's not attached to the things we thought it was attached to. Culturally, he turned it on its head. Everything they believed, he turned it upside down. But he didn't just do it culturally. He did it politically. They're looking for a Messiah. The Jews have been looking for, there was a promised Messiah hundreds of years before. They are anticipating a Messiah Jesus comes onto the scene and there are those who begin to say he's the Messiah he's the anointed one and they're right he is Messiah and so they get really really excited and a great number of them they get very excited about this idea our Messiah has come. I mean look at what he does look at how he teaches and the authority that he speaks with look at the power the miracles that he does look this has got to be our Messiah this is the political ruler this is the political leader that we've been anticipating we've been waiting for that he's going to come and he's going to take over, he's going to take charge, and he's going, to bring, he's going to bring judgment on our enemies. He's going to free us from the bondage that we're in. The Romans won't rule over us anymore, or anybody else for that matter. And Jesus shows up and he says, this world is not my kingdom. This kingdom is not my kingdom. He will not take over as a political ruler. As a matter of fact, many of them are going to be turned off and turned away and never believe him and never follow him because he does not fit the stereotype of what they thought Messiah, the political ruler that they were expecting. He doesn't look like they thought he was supposed to look. And so they reject him. By the way, that's still happening today. Jesus doesn't look the way we think he's supposed to look. And so we reject him. He wasn't there to be a political ruler the way they thought because they had thoughts of revenge. They had thoughts of getting even with some people. They had thoughts of being in charge, not being under, but being over. Jesus, you're supposed to lead us in this. We have thoughts of that. I want to be in charge. And yet, Jesus, what did he say? If you're going to be the one in charge, you're going to be the leader, then you be servant of all. There's a book. We had this thing Friday night here to live to lead and there's a book that I want to get because just the title intrigued me by Simon Sinek called Leaders Eat Last I haven't read it but the, the title itself intrigues me because there's a concept here that says it's a biblical concept I don't know that he intended it to be a biblical concept but it is if you're going to be the one in charge then you're going to become servant of all Jesus said that's my kingdom 
And he models that for us. But that is not the political system that we have today. I'm probably going to get in trouble, but I'm going to say this anyway. Can I warn you as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, I pray, matter of fact, I have prayed more and been prompted more to pray for my new president than I did my old president. But our new president is not Messiah. His middle initial does not stand for Jesus. Okay? He cannot save you. He cannot save us. Did you hear me? He can't. To expect him to is to put on him an unrealistic expectation. And quite honestly, I think it goes beyond that for believers. We make him an idol. Pray for him. Lift him up as we should for all who are in authority over us. But he's not Messiah. But you know the problem that we have, even as believers in the state, we're just like they were 2,000 years ago. We feel like that if we can have our person in charge, we can get things done. We can change stuff. What's wrong with this nation will never be fixed in Washington. Because it's in the hearts of men and women. It's not in our government or style of government. It's not who's president or who's on the Supreme Court. What's wrong with this nation is in the hearts of men. So he politically came and turned it on its head. He culturally turned it on its head. And then he came, I'm about to do the thing you're not supposed to, I'm gonna talk about politics and religion. You're not supposed to talk about either one of them. All right? He came and he turned religion on its head. He was talking to the most religious people. They were so religious. They, they had, were law keepers. They were rule keepers. They knew what it was to sacrifice and to follow rules and follow law. And they were earning God's favor based on their performance. Which, by the way, is the heart of every religion. Every religion, every, I don't care which one it is, every religion, you can bring it and show it to me, I will show you in that religion that it is based on the adherents, those who are followers of that religion, they are earning whatever it is they're earning by their performance until you come to Christianity. And Jesus comes and says, you cannot earn anything. You cannot perform well enough to receive my blessing. You won't be happy because you performed well. That's what he's saying. Happiness isn't based on your performance. As a matter of fact, all of the Sermon on the Mount is a, a turning from doing because they understood doing, performing, and possessing. That is the heart of a legalist. I'm going to do, I'm going to perform, I'm going to possess. And he comes and he says, no. My message to you is you will receive and believe and be changed. Well, I prefer the do, perform, and, and possess. Don't you? In many ways, I mean, let's be honest. In many ways, isn't that simpler? Isn't it simpler to say, just tell me what I need to do. Tell me what the rules are. Tell me what it is I'm supposed to accomplish. I will do that. I'll do my part, and then you do your part. And the Lord comes back to us and says, I did that. That's what the whole Old Testament, the Old Covenant is about, is me setting up a system like that. Where I do my part and man does his part. The problem is man can never do his part. And so then we keep changing the goalposts. We keep moving the goalposts. We keep changing the rules. So that, we, well, I can't live up to this, but I can live up to this. So I'll make this the new standard. And you wonder why culture looks the way it does, why society looks the way Because we keep moving the standard. We keep moving the goalpost. 
Jesus comes and he says, happy, happiness is not based on how you perform. Happiness is on the inside. My kingdom is on the inside, not on the outside. I'm going to do this work within you that will change you. Makarios. Can I tell you, it was probably 30 years ago now that I first began to really look at the Sermon on the Mount. I had to. It was part of things that I was doing. And I came into it with this mindset of a legalist. With this, I was a religionist. You say, what's a religionist? Let me tell you, when, Jesus, when I say he turned religion on its head, there were four primary religious groups in that crowd that day that Jesus was talking to. They were part of Israel's culture in that day, four religious groups. You had the Pharisees. The Pharisees would be traditionalists. All right, traditionalists would be, we have, we've always done it this way. This is how God's blessed in the past. This is what he said in the past. This is what we're supposed to do. We keep repeating, we keep doing what has always been done. That's, that was the Pharisees. Then you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees, and that dumb joke that you heard, they were sad, you see. No, that, that is, all right. But the Sadducees really, they really weren't that sad. Actually, they would be compared to the liberals of our day. Their belief was, hey, it's not about tradition. It's about current, it's about relevancy. It's about what's going on right now and having a message that's palatable, palatable and relevant for the culture today. So we change what, whatever that means. We change whatever we need to so that it's palatable. It's, it's relevant. It's, it's something that appeals to us. It doesn't necessarily mean it's biblical. It doesn't mean that it's right. It just means it's, it's something people will receive. You had the Essenes. The Essenes believed that there was righteousness in separation. Let's separate from the world. Now, it, on the face of that, that's true. We are to be different from the world. But their whole belief was geographically separate. I'm going to take and move myself far enough away from whatever's bad, whatever's sin, whatever's unrighteous, and then I'll be righteous, I'll be good, I'll please God because I have geographical distance between me and whatever bad is going on. As I'm going through these, do you still see these today in the church? They're still here, aren't they? We have, we have the Pharisee, the traditionalist. It has to be done this way because that's the way we always did it. and That's how God blessed in the past. We have the Sadducees, the, the liberals who say, no, it has to be relevant for today. We have the Essenes who say, no, the way to do this is you just kind of pull back, you know, build a, a wall and a moat and, you know, and protect. Keep all the bad out. My friend Clark Witten, I heard him speaking one time, and uh, he said he was reading in a Christian magazine one time, and there was an advertisement for a, a Christian fundamentalist, you know, conservative college. And the tagline on the advertisement in the magazine was, we are located 15 miles from the nearest sin. <laughs> oh, really? So you're in a graveyard. That's where you're at. And all of you are dead. You're in a graveyard and you're all dead. Let me know where that place is that you're 15 miles from the nearest sin. But see, we have that belief, that thought, Right? If I can separate out from the bad stuff, then I'll be okay. I'll be righteous. And then there was one last group. They were the zealots. And they felt like that you overcame by power and force. So let's have a rally and a march. 
Let's come against, let's unite together, let them see the error of their way and force, we're going to come against and, and force change. You have the same four groups today. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. So Jesus' message is just as relevant today as it was then. Because he comes to all of them and he says, you're all wrong and you're all miserable. You're all wrong and you're, all, you're miserable. And my goal for you is true happiness. Because you keep fighting, you keep believing that happiness is found in the things that you can see in this world around you. The traditionalist says, I can see the things that I've, I've known all my life and I'm comfortable with and I like those things. And by the way, just because it's tradition doesn't make it bad. It also doesn't automatically make it right. Okay? He could go either way. It's not bad because it's, tra because it's traditional, and it's not right because it's traditional. I've shared with you before, when we do the Lord's Supper, we have that cloth that we put over the Lord's Supper. You know that very pretty lacy white cloth that we put over the, all the elements on the Lord's table? I remember asking one day, I started doing a little research, why do we have that white cloth? I thought it had some, some great spiritual meaning and representation. No, back in the days when you didn't have air conditioning, they opened the windows and the flies would come get on the stuff, so they put a cloth over to keep the flies off. But, you know, what if we split a church over? We've got to have a cloth. I've got a white, lacy one. Pretty, it's got to be this one. It's got to go on. It's got to have a little ring in the middle so you can pull it up. You know, and, and we, churches have split over less. Tradition is not bad, but it may not necessarily be godly either. It may have been practical in a moment, but not practical any longer. By the way, I don't care if they keep putting it on there. It's fine. It's pretty. All right? Makes no difference one way or the other. But it has no spiritual meaning. I don't want to be so liberal and so relevant that I have no biblical foundation. Sure, we want to be relevant. Sure, we want, we, we want to be able to converse with everyone in the day and age in which we live. But the problem that we're going to run into, and that you're going to run into, that sooner or later in every conversation, we're all going to be called to believe something by faith that we can't necessarily prove any other way. Because Christianity, following Christ, is a walk of faith. And it often doesn't make sense to our mind, to our flesh. It just doesn't make sense. Or we can be the Essenes who say, I'm going to pull apart and I'm going to keep everybody at bay. And we're going to be righteous and godly because we've got distance and separation. You know the problem with that is wherever you go, you're still there. That's your problem. That's my problem. Have you discovered I can get in a fight with myself? I don't need anybody else. Some of you are more peacemaking than that. But I mean, I can fight with me. I don't need you. Wherever you go, you're still there. You're not going to run away from sin. You've got to be changed from the inside. I've got to be changed from the inside. Jesus comes, and he's telling them, I've got a better way. And he's saying the same thing to you and me. Can you imagine what life would be like if I had a happiness, a true happiness within that was not affected by what went on without? Let me ask you, do you think there would be less alcohol abuse in our country? 
How about drug abuse? You think there'd be less? How about pornography or other social ills like that? You say, well, that's a, these things are addictions. Yes, but addictions have at their base a desire to find peace and wholeness and happiness. People don't have addictions because they just love the addiction. They're looking for something. We're looking for something. We're looking for what Jesus said, I came to give you. True happiness, wholeness, a rest within, a joy within that does not have to change because of what's going on without. Now, do I always live that way? No. I don't. Any of you always live that way? Anybody here that's figured that one out yet? I can tell you this, I live that way more now than I used to. But here's what I believe. And here's the thing that the Lord has, has so... He, he's, he has reiterated this to me over and over again. Troy, just because it's not so yet in your life, don't reject it. Don't reject it just because it's not so. See, I think that's our problem sometimes. We try to reject what isn't real yet, what we don't experience all the time. I'm going to reject it because I feel bad that I haven't somehow achieved it because I'm a legalist. I'm thinking I haven't done the right thing, performed the right way, so I don't yet possess what it is I'm supposed to possess. I want you to understand something. Jesus came and he said, if you're in Christ, you already have this in you. Now, if you'll let me, I will transform from the inside out every part of your life. If you'll respond, if you'll believe me and respond to that, I will transform every part of your life. So I can be happy even when I'm sad. I can be happy not being in charge. I can be happy being the low guy on the totem pole. I can be happy when I'm in relationship with those that I love and I can be happy when I'm all by myself and there's nobody but me and Jesus. I can be happy when everybody's healthy and I can be happy when someone dies. I can be happy when I have more than enough and I can be happy when I have nothing at all. Folks, that message is revolutionary. You know why it's important that we study the Sermon on the Mount? It is my belief that the greatest demonstration we will ever have to a lost world that Jesus is exactly who he says he is is when we live this way. I want people to start checking my trash to see what I'm on. <laughs> I do. Don't you? I give them permission. I give you permission to go check my trash. All right? And people's like, what are you taking? You know, what, you know, what kind of happy juice are you on? Jesus is my happy juice. This is what God always intended. This is what the Sermon on the Mount, this is what's going to, it's going to unpack for us as we go through this. He's going to tell us step by step how to experience it as we go through this. Don't miss it. Don't miss any part of it. I want you to bow your heads with me. Lori, might ask you to come play. You know why else it's vital that we study the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll see this, especially next week as we begin to get into this. Only Christians can have true happiness. They're the only ones. Now, not every Christian does, but those who have true happiness are Christian. 
Not every Christian has true happiness, but everyone who has true happiness is Christian. They are a believer. They are a follower of Jesus Christ because you can't have it otherwise. And again, that doesn't make sense from a worldly perspective. So I want to do something this morning. Can I ask you a question? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? I didn't ask you if you had religion. I didn't ask you if you were a Pharisee, a traditionalist, who followed the, the, the traditions of the past. Or if you were a liberal and socially minded and big on social justice and caring for the common man. That's all great, but that's not what I ask you. I didn't ask you what standards you have and how, how good a job you do at protecting yourself from the evil influence of this world. That's great as well, but that's not what I ask. I didn't ask you what causes you have and what rallies you've been part of. I ask you one simple question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? And here's another, probably even more important question. Does he know you? The scripture says in John, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. See, I think that verse should say, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. But that's not what it says. It says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. Does he know you today? And you say, I'm not sure I've done enough, Troy. You know, I'm, now that you asked me that question, I'm squirming a little bit. Have I, I'm not sure if, you know, I did some stuff this week or this month or in my life. Or I haven't really performed so well. I'm not doing everything I'm supposed to be doing right now. That, again, is not the question. That is the mindset of a legalist. That is the, that's the thought process that Jesus came to turn upside down. You do not know him and he does not know you based on your performance. You know him, and he knows you based on the fact that you have received his revelation to you of who he is. You have believed it, and he has said, I make you part of my kingdom. You are mine, and I am yours. Not because of what you do, but because of what you believe. And this morning, you may be a believer, but you're still wrestling with this performance thing. I know. I do too, at times, sometimes worse than others. Would you right now say, Jesus, I believe you. I know what your word says. I know that you've got a different way, that you came to change the way I think and the way the world thinks and, and to turn everything as we understand it on its head. I, I get that, but it's hard for me. I, I'm, not, I'm not living it right. I'm not, it's not part of my everyday life all the time. But Lord, I believe you. See, that is the first step in this. As I quit arguing with the Lord over what I couldn't understand or what I couldn't live and just simply said, Jesus, you said it, I believe it. I believe that what you say, Lord, is possible for me. It's more than just possible. It's a promise for me. And I want it. I want it. Could you tell him this morning, 
Jesus, I believe it's possible. You promised it, and I want it. I haven't gotten there yet, but I want it. Lord Jesus, all over this room, that you move by your Spirit, stir in us. First of all, Lord, give us revelation to keep seeing more than we've seen and hearing more than we've heard. Lord, give us your grace to respond. And Lord, as your grace is applied to us, that we would receive it and we would respond. We would believe you. We would believe you even in the areas of our life where it's not true yet. We'd still believe you. Lord, I would say this morning, I believe you. In the areas of my life where it is not true yet, I believe you. I thank you for what you've done, but I anticipate that you're going to do much more. And I want it. We want it. We want you, Jesus. We want you. Lord, allow us to be truly happy people. Not as the world defines them, but as you define them. Allow us to experience the supernatural. And if you're here this morning, and you realize as we've been sharing and praying, you know, I really don't know Jesus. In a moment, we're going to dismiss. Matter of fact, I'm going to ask my prayer partners to go ahead and move now. And we're going to dismiss in just a moment. And we're here to pray with you about anything. If you don't know Jesus, we'll pray with you about that. If you do know him, but you're struggling with particular things that are going on, or there are just needs in your life, we will pray with you about that. I just, I had the privilege just a moment ago during the greeting time of talking to Rebecca and she was, she was thanking us for the podcast because of health issues. She hasn't been able to be here, but God has so ministered to her and strengthened her as she's walking through this. But I began to realize, even as she's sharing, we need, first of all, to hear God speak and we need people who will pray with us and pray for us and lift us up. So give us the privilege, allow us to have that privilege of praying with you, whatever's going on in your life. That's what we're here for. So Lord Jesus, I pray for each one today. Those who know you, those of us who know you and have need, I pray, Lord, that you would speak and we would receive. And for those who don't know you today, Lord, may today be the day of salvation. This day. Lord, thank you for all that you have in store, what you've done this morning and what you have in store for tonight. Thank you for trusting you that your spirit would move and be at work. And we pray this in Jesus' name.